Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Simon Anthony and Torty Talks. In this reading of Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Restaurant at the End of the Universe, we rejoin Zaphod Beeblebrooks on Frogstar Planet B, as he and Gagrava are talking about the wonders of disembodied minds, and Gagrava is somewhat upset. Which is odd, as it is Zaphod who is about to be fed into the total perspective vortex, and in order to postpone this inevitable event, Zaphod is being accidentally somewhat insulting. What is all this with your body? said Zaphod, anxious to delay whatever it was that was going to happen to him. Well, it's... it's busy, you know said Gargravar hesitantly. You mean it's got a mind of its own? said Zaphod. There was a long and slightly chilly pause before Gargravar spoke again. I have to say, he replied eventually, that I find that remark in rather poor taste. Zaphod muttered a bewildered and embarrassed apology. No matter, said Gargravar. You weren't to know. The voice fluttered unhappily. The truth is, he continued in tones which suggested he was trying very hard to keep it under control, the truth is that we are currently undergoing a period of legal trial separation. I suspect it will end in divorce. The voice was still again, leaving Zaphod with no idea of what to say. He mumbled uncertainly. I think we are probably not very well suited, said Gargrava again at length. We never seemed to be happy doing the same things. We always had the greatest arguments over sex and fishing. Eventually we tried to combine the two, but that only led to disaster, as you can probably imagine. And now my body refuses to let me in. It won't even see me. He paused again tragically. The wind whipped across the plain. It says I only inhibit it. I pointed out the fact that I was meant to inhibit it, and that it said was exactly the sort of smart aleck remark that got right up a body's left nostril. And so we left it. It will probably get custody of my forename. Oh, said Zaphod faintly. And what's that? Pizpot, said the voice. My name is... Pizpot Gargrava. Says it all, really, doesn't it? Ah, said Zaphod sympathetically. And that is why I, as a disembodied mind, have this job, custodian of the total perspective vortex. No one will ever walk on the ground of this planet except the victims of the vortex. They don't really count, I'm afraid. Ah, I'll tell you the story. Would you like to hear it? Uh, many years ago, this was a thriving, happy planet. People, cities, shops, a normal world. Except that on the high streets of these cities, there were slightly more shoe shops than one might have thought necessary. And slowly, insidiously, the numbers of those shoe shops were increasing. 
It is a well-known economic phenomenon, but tragic to see it in operation, for the more shoe shops there were, the more shoes they had to make, and the worse and more unwearable they became. And the worse they were to wear, the more people had to buy to keep themselves shod, and the more the shops proliferated, until the whole economy of the place passed what I believe is termed the shoe event horizon and it became no longer economically possible to build anything other than shoe shops. Result, collapse, ruin, and famine. Most of the population died out. Those few who had the right kind of genetic instability mutated into birds. You've seen one of them who cursed their feet, cursed the ground, and vowed that none should walk on it again. Unhappy lot. Come, I must take you to the vortex. Zaphod shook his head in bemusement and stumbled forward across the plain. And you, he said, you come from this hellhole pit, do you? No, no, Sagar Gravark, taken aback. I come from the frog star world to see. Beautiful place, wonderful fishing. I flit back there in the evenings, though all I can do now is watch. The total perspective vortex is the only thing on this planet with any function. It was built here because no one else wanted it on their doorstep. At that moment, another dismal scream rent the air, and Zaphod shuddered. What can do that to a guy? he breathed. The universe, Sagarkva simply. The whole infinite universe. The infinite suns, the infinite distances between them, and yourself an invisible dot on an invisible dot, infinitely small. Hey, I'm Zaphod Beeblebrock's man, you know, muttered Zaphod, trying to flap the last remnants of his ego. Gargravar made no reply, but merely resumed his mournful humming till they reached the tarnished steel dome in the middle of the plain. As they reached it, a door hummed open in the side, revealing a small darkened chamber within. Enter, said Gargravar. Seyford started with fear. Hey, what, now, he said. Now. Zaphod peered nervously inside. The chamber was very small. It was steel-lined, and there was hardly any space in it for more than one man. It, uh, it doesn't look like any kind of vortex to me, said Zaphod. It isn't, said Gargavar. It's just the elevator. Enter. With infinite trepidation, Zaphod stepped into it. He was aware of Gargavar being in the elevator with him, though the disembodied man was not for the moment speaking. The elevator began its descent. I must get myself into the right frame of mind for this, muttered Zaphod. There is no right frame of mind, said Gartrevar sternly. You really know how to make a guy feel inadequate. I don't. The vortex does. At the bottom of the shaft, the rear of the elevator opened up, and Zaphod stumbled out into a smallish, functional, steel-lined chamber. At the far side of it stood a single upright steel box, just large enough for a man to stand in. It was that simple. It connected to a small pile of components and instruments via a single thick wire. Is that it? said Zaphod in surprise. That is it. Didn't look too bad, thought Zaphod. 
and I uh, get in there, do I? said Zaphod. You get in there, said Gargrava, and I'm afraid you must do it now. Okay, okay, said Zaphod. He opened the door of the box and stepped in. Inside the box he waited. After five seconds there was a click, and the entire universe was there in the box with him. Chapter 11 The total perspective vortex derives its picture of the whole universe on the principle of extrapolated matter analysis. To explain, since every piece of matter in the universe is in some way affected by every other piece of matter in the universe, it is in theory possible to extrapolate the whole of creation, every sun, every planet, their orbits, their composition and their economic and social history from, say, one small piece of fairy cake. The man who invented the total perspective vortex did so basically in order to annoy his wife. Trintragula, for that was his name, was a dreamer, a thinker, a speculative philosopher, or, as his wife would have it, an idiot. And she would nag him incessantly about the utterly inordinate amount of time he spent staring out into space, or mulling over the mechanics of safety pins, or doing spectrographic analyses of pieces of fairy cake. Have some sense of proportion, she would say, sometimes as often as 38 times in a single day. And so he built the total perspective vortex, just to show her. And into one end he plugged the whole of reality as extrapolated from a piece of fairy cake, and into the other end he plugged his wife. So that when he turned it on, she saw in one instant the whole infinity of creation and herself in relation to it. To Trintragula's horror, the shock completely annihilated her brain. But to his satisfaction, he realised that he had proved conclusively that if life is going to exist in a universe of this size, then the one thing it cannot afford to have is a sense of proportion. The door of the vortex swung open. From his disembodied mind, Gargravar watched dejectedly. He had rather liked Zaphod Beewell Rocks in a strange sort of way. He was clearly a man of many qualities, even if most were bad ones. He waited for him to flop forwards out of the box, as they all did. Instead, he stepped out. Hi, he said. Beeble Brooks, gasped Gargravar's mind in amazement. Could I have a drink, please, said Zaphod. You, you have been in the vortex, stammered Gargravar. You saw me, kid, and it was working. Sure was. And you saw the whole infinity of creation. Sure, really neat place, you know that? Gargravar's mind was reeling in astonishment. Had his body been with him, it would have sat down heavily with its mouth hanging open. And you saw yourself, said Gargravar, in relation to it all? Oh, yeah, yeah. But what did you experience? Zaphod shrugged smugly. He just told me what I knew all the time. I'm really terrific and great guy. Didn't I tell you, baby, I'm Zaphod Beeblebrocks? His gaze passed over the machinery which powered the vortex and suddenly stopped, startled. He breathed heavily. Hey, he said, is that really a piece of fairy cake? He ripped the small piece of confectionery from the censers with which it was surrounded. If I told you how much I needed this, he said ravenously, I wouldn't have time to eat it. He ate it. Chapter 12 
A short while later, he was running across the plain in the direction of the ruined city. The dank air wheezed heavily in his lungs, and he frequently stumbled with the exhaustion he was still feeling. Night was beginning to fall, too, and the rough ground was treacherous. The elation of his recent experience was still with him, though. The whole universe, he had seen the whole universe stretching to infinity around him, everything, and with it came the clear and extraordinary knowledge that he was the most important thing in it. Having a conceited ego is one thing, actually being told by a machine is another. He didn't have time to reflect on this matter. Gargavar had told him that he would have to alert his masters as to what had happened, but that he was prepared to leave a decent interval before doing so, enough time for Zephyr to make a break and find somewhere to hide. What he was going to do, he didn't know, but feeling that he was the most important person in the universe gave him the confidence to believe that something would turn up. Nothing else on this benighted planet could give him much grounds for optimism. He ran on and soon reached the outskirts of the abandoned city. He walked along cracked and gaping roads, riddled with scrawny weeds, holes filled with rotting shoes. The buildings he passed were so crumbled and decrepit, he thought it unsafe to enter any of them. Where could he hide? He hurried on. After a while, the remains of a wide-sweeping road led off from the one down which he was walking, and at its end lay a vast low building, surrounded with sundry smaller ones, the whole surrounded by the remains of a perimeter barrier. The large main building still seemed reasonably solid, and Zephod turned off to see if it might provide him with, well, anything. He approached the building. Along one side of it, the front, it would seem, since it faced a wide concreted apron area, there were three gigantic doors, maybe sixty feet high. The far one of these was open, and towards this Zephon ran. Inside all was gloom, dust, and confusion. Giant cobwebs lay over everything. Part of the infrastructure of the building had collapsed, part of the rear wall had caved in, and a thick choking dust lay inches over the floor. Through the heavy gloom, huge shapes loomed, covered with debris. The shapes were sometimes cylindrical, sometimes bulbous, sometimes like eggs or rather cracked eggs. Most of them were split open or falling apart. Some were mere skeletons. They were all spacecraft all derelict. Zaphod wandered in frustration among the hulks. There was nothing here that remotely approached the serviceable. Even the mere vibration of his footsteps caused one precarious wreck to collapse further into itself. Towards the rear of the building lay one old ship, slightly larger than the others and buried beneath even deeper piles of dust and cobwebs. Its outline, however, seemed unbroken. Zaphod approached it with interest, and as he did so, he tripped over the old feed line. He tried to toss the feed line aside, and to his surprise, discovered that it was still connected to the ship. To his utter astonishment, he realized that the feed line was also humming slightly. He stared at the ship in disbelief, and then backed down at the feed line in his hands. He tore off his jacket and threw it aside. Crawling along on his hands and knees, he followed the feed line to the point where it connected with the ship. The connection was sound, and the slight humming vibration was more distinct. His heart was beating fast. 
He wiped away some grime and laid an ear against the ship's side. He could only hear a faint, indeterminate noise. He rummaged feverishly amongst the debris lying on the floor all about him and found a short length of tubing and a non-biodegradable plastic cup. Out of this he fashioned a crude stethoscope and placed it against the side of the ship. What he heard made his brains turn somersault. The voice said, Transtellar Cruise Lines would like to apologise to passengers for the continuing delay to this flight. We are currently awaiting the loading of our complement of small lemon soap paper napkins for your comfort, refreshment and hygiene during the journey. Meanwhile, we thank you for your patience. The cabin crew will shortly be serving coffee and biscuits. Again. Zaphod staggered backwards, staring wildly at the ship. He walked around for a few moments in a daze. In so doing, he suddenly caught sight of the giant departure board, still hanging, but by only one support, from the ceiling above him. It was covered with grime, but some of the figures were still discernible. Zaphod's eyes searched amongst the figures, and then made some brief calculations. His eyes widened. Nine hundred years, he breathed to himself. That was how late the ship was. Two minutes later, he was aboard. As he stepped out of the airlock, the air that greeted him was cool and fresh. The air conditioning was still working. The lights were still on. He moved out of the small entrance chamber into a short, narrow corridor and stepped nervously down it. Suddenly, a door opened and a figure stepped out in front of him. Please return to your seat, sir, said the android stewardess, and turning her back on him, she walked on down the corridor in front of him. When his heart had started beating again, he followed her. She opened the door at the end of the corridor and walked through. He followed her through the door. They were now in the passenger compartment, and Zaphod's heart stopped still again for a moment. In every seat sat a passenger, strapped into his or her seat. The passenger's hair was long and unkempt. The fingernails were long. The men wore beards. All of them were quite clearly alive, but sleeping. Zaphod had the creeping horrors. He walked slowly down the aisle as in a dream. By the time he was halfway down the aisle, the stewardess had reached the other end. She turned and spoke. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, she said sweetly. Thank you for bearing with us during this slight delay. We'll be taking off as soon as we possibly can. If you'd like to wake up now, I will serve you coffee and biscuits. There was a slight hum. At that moment, all the passengers awoke. They awoke screaming and clawing at their straps and life support systems that held them tightly in their seats. They screamed and bawled and hollered till Zaphod thought his ears would shatter. They struggled and writhed as the stewardess patiently moved up the aisle, placing a small cup of coffee and a packet of biscuits in front of each of them. Then one of them rose from his seat. He turned and looked at Zaphod. Zaphod's skin was crawling all over his body as if it was trying to get off. He turned and ran from the bedlam. He plunged through the door and back into the corridor. The man pursued him. He raced in a frenzy to the end of the corridor, through the entrance chamber and beyond. He arrived at the flight desk, slammed and bolted the door behind him and leant back against the door, breathing hard. Within seconds, a hand started beating on the door. From somewhere on the flight deck, a metallic voice addressed him. 
Passengers are not allowed on the flight deck. Please return to your seat and wait for the ship to take off. Coffee and biscuits are being served. This is your autopilot speaking. Please return to your seat. Zephod said nothing. He breathed hard. Behind him, the hand continued to knock on the door. Please return to your seat, repeated the autopilot. Passengers are not allowed on the flight deck. I'm not a passenger, panted Zephod. Please return to your seat. I'm not a passenger, shouted Zephod again. Please return to your seat. I'm not a... a hello, can you hear me? Please return to your seat. You're the autopilot, said Zephod. Yes, said the voice from the flight console. You're in charge of this ship? Yes, said the voice again. There has been a delay. Passengers are to be kept temporarily in suspended animation for their comfort and convenience. Coffee and biscuits are being served every year, after which passengers are returned to suspended animation for the continued comfort and convenience. Departure will take place when the flight stores are complete. We apologise for the delay. Zaphod moved away from the door, on which the pounding had now ceased. He approached the flight console. Delay, he cried. Have you seen the world outside this ship? It's a wasteland, a desert. Civilization's been and gone, man. There are no lemon soap paper napkins on the way from anywhere. The statistical likelihood, continued the autopilot primly, is that other civilizations will arise. There will one day be lemon soap paper napkins. Till then, there will be a short delay. Please return to your seat. But, but at that moment, the door opened. Zaphod spun round to see the man who had pursued him standing there. He carried a large briefcase. He was smartly dressed and his hair was short. He had no beard and no long fingernails. Zephard Beeblebrox, he said. My name is Zarniwoop. I believe you wanted to see me. Zephard Beeblebrox wittered. His mouths said foolish things. He dropped into a chair. Oh, man, oh, man, where did you spring from, he said. I've been waiting here for you, he said in a business-like tone. He put the briefcase down and sat in another chair. I'm glad you followed instructions, he said. I was a bit nervous that you might have left my office by the door rather than the window. Then you would have been in trouble. Zephod shook his heads at him and burbled. When you entered the door to my office, you entered my electronically synthesized universe, he explained. If you had left by the door, you would have been back in the real one. The artificial one works from here. He patted the briefcase smugly. Zephod glared at him with resentment and loathing. What's the difference? he muttered. Nothing, said Zarniwoop. They are identical. Oh, except that I think the Frogstar fighters are grey in the real universe. What's going on? spat Zaphod. Simple, said Zarniwoop. His self-assurance and smugness made Zaphod seethe. Very simple, repeated Zarniwoop. I discovered the coordinates at which this man could be found the man who rules the universe, and discovered that his world was protected by an unprobability field. To protect my secret and myself, I retreated to the safety of this totally artificial universe and hid myself away in a forgotten cruise liner.
I was secure. Meanwhile, you and I... You and I, said Zephod angrily. You mean I knew you? Yes, said Zanibu. We knew each other well. I had no taste, said Zephod, and resumed a sudden silence. Meanwhile, you and I arranged that you would steal the improbability drive ship, the only one which could reach the ruler's world and bring it to me here. This you have now done, I trust, and I congratulate you. He smiled a tight little smile, which Zaphod wanted to hit with a brick. Oh, and in case you're wondering, added Zanywoop, this universe was created specifically for you to come to. You are therefore the most important person in this universe. You would never, he said with an even more brickable smile, have survived the total perspective vortex in the real one. Shall we go? Where? said Zaphod sullenly. He felt collapsed. To your ship, the heart of gold? You did bring it, I trust? No. Where is your jacket? Zaphod looked at him in mystification. My jacket? I took it off outside. Good. We will go and find it. Zaniwoop stood up and gestured to Zaphod to follow him. Out of the entrance chamber again, they could hear the screams of the passengers being fed coffee and biscuits. It has not been a pleasant experience waiting for you, said Zaniwoop. Not pleasant for you, bawled Zaphod. How do you think... Zaniwoop held up a silencing finger as the hatchway swung open. A few feet away from them, they could see Zaphod's jacket lying in the debris. A very remarkable and very powerful ship, said Zaniwoop. Watch. As they watched, the pocket in the jacket suddenly bulged. It split. It ripped. A small metal model of the heart of gold that Zaphod had been bewildered to discover in his pocket was growing. It grew. It continued to grow. It reached, after two minutes, its full size. At an improbability level, said Zaniwoop, oh, I don't know, but something very large. Zaphod swayed. You mean I had it with me all the time? Zaniwoop smiled. He lifted up his briefcase and opened it. He twisted a single switch inside it. Goodbye, artificial universe, he said. Hello, real one. The scene before them shimmered briefly and reappeared, exactly as before. You see, said Zaniwoop, exactly the same. You mean, repeated Zaphod shortly, that I had it with me all the time? Oh, yes, said Zaniwoop, of course, that was the whole point. That's it, said Zaphod. You can cut me out from here on in, you can cut me out. I've had all I want of this, you play your own games. I'm afraid you cannot leave, said Zaniwoop. You are entwined in the improbability field. You cannot escape. He smiled the smile that Zaphod had wanted to hit, and this time Zaphod hit it. Ford Prefect bounded up to the bridge of the Heart of Gold. Trillian, Arthur, he shouted. It's working. The ship's reactivated. Trillian and Arthur were asleep on the floor. Come on, you guys. We're going to get off. Off, he said, kicking them awake. Hi there, guys, twittered the computer. It's really great to be back with you again, I can tell you. And I just wanted to say that. Shut up, said Ford. Tell us where the hell we are. Frogstar, world big and man, it's a dump, 
said Zaphod, running onto the bridge. Hi, guys, you must be so amazingly glad to see me. You don't even find words to tell me what a cool fruit I am. What? What? said Arthur blearily, picking himself up from the floor and not taking any of this in. I know how you feel, said Zaphod. I'm so great, even I get tongue-tied talking to myself. Hey, it's good to see you, Trillian. Ford, Monkey Man, hey, uh, computer. Hi there, Mr. Beeblebrock, sir. Sure is great on it. Shut up and get us out of here fast, fast, fast. Sure thing, fella, where would he want to go? Anywhere, doesn't matter, shouted Zaphod. Yes, it does, he said again. We want to go to the nearest place to eat. Sure thing, said the computer happily, and a massive explosion rocked the ship. When Zaniwoop entered a minute or so later with a black eye, he regarded the four wisps of smoke with interest. Four inert bodies sank through spinning blackness. Consciousness had died. Cold oblivion pulled their bodies down and down into the pit of unbeing. The roar of silence echoed dismally around them, and they sank at last into the dark and bitter sea of heaving red that slowly engulfed them, seemingly forever. After what seemed an eternity... The sea receded and left them lying on a cold, hard shore. The flotsam and jetsam of the stream of life, the universe, and everything. Cold spasms shook them. Lights danced sickeningly around them. The cold, hard shore tipped and span and then stood still. It shone darkly. It was a very highly polished cold, hard shore. A green blur watched them disapprovingly. It coughed. A good evening, madam, gentlemen, it said. Do you have a reservation? That was one in a series of Torty Talks by Simon Anthony, acting at torty.org.uk.